0: Hello and welcome all you spiritual rebels, heretics, and revolutionaries out there. My name is Lawrence Gallien, and this is The Silence of the Mind, the most direct and experiential podcast to help you attain enlightenment and self-actualization in this lifetime. We are not believers. We are experiencers. Hello and welcome all you spiritual rebels, heretics, and revolutionaries out there. This is the Silence of the Mind, and my name is Lawrence Gellian, and thanks for listening. If you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button and give this podcast five stars. Today we're going to explore various meanings of the phrase Zen rock, and from actual Zen rock gardens to Zen music, and even touch on the Zen poetry of the famous beat poets. First, let's do a little housekeeping. Zen is not a philosophy or a religion. Zen tries to free the mind from the slavery of words and the constriction of logic. Zen is the essence in the art of seeing into the nature of one's own being and it points the way from bondage to freedom. You might say, Zen is meditation, but it's way more than meditation. Zen can be carried into your job, into any kind of interactions you may have with other human beings. Why? Because Zen is a state of calm attentiveness in which one's actions are guided by intuition rather than by conscious effort. This doesn't mean that you can just listen to this one podcast of The Silence of the Mind and then go out and do whatever you want. Through meditation and other Zen practices, you develop a Zen mind. A Zen-like day is intentional, full of tranquility and joyful. In other words, What you need to do is look for ways to make your day more Zen. Zen is a form of Buddhism, and its essence is experiencing life directly. In the West, Zen is often synonymous with simplicity, mindfulness, and calm. Sean Negus, in an article The Intersection of Buddhism and the Beat Generation tells us that in the 1950s, that was the decade when Zen Buddhism is regarded to have established roots in American culture. D.T. Suzuki, a Zen teacher from Japan, was sent to North America by his teacher, Soyen Shaku, In 1896, after having lived in New York for some time, he was invited to lecture at Columbia University and had a powerful presence amongst a handful of influential individuals that consisted of artists, intellectuals, and psychologists. Rick Fields, a scholar of American religious history, attributes to D.T. Suzuki and his work the universalization of Zen, thereby making it available to a wide number of people in Western culture. This would be the first time Buddhism was taught and practiced in a context removed from monasticism a zen boom as it is referred to by scholars of religious history in america occurred during this decade the book titled the way of zen by d t suzuki was a best seller and serves as an example of the growing role zen was having on the american fascination with forms of spirituality outside the hegemonic mainstream. Hegemony is the political, economic, or military predominance or control of one state over others. In the 1940s and 50s, a new generation of poets rebelled against The conventions of mainstream American life and writing. They became known as the beat poets, a name that evokes weariness, down and outness, the beat under a piece of music, and beatific spirituality. At first, they organized in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. By the 1950s, poets at the heart of the movement had settled in the Bay Area, especially in neighborhoods near beat poet and publisher Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore, City Lights. Beat poets sought to write in an authentic, unfettered style. First thought, best thought, was how central beat poet Allen Ginsberg described their method of spontaneous writing. Poetically experimental and politically dissident, the beat poets expanded their consciousness through explorations of hallucinogenic drugs, sexual freedom, Eastern religion, and the natural world. They took inspiration from jazz musicians, surrealists, metaphysical poets, visionary poets such as William Blake, and haiku and zen poetry. In his article, Driving the Beat Road, Jeff Weiss explains, More than a half century after their emergence, the beats still offer up wild style, a sense of freedom and wonder for the natural world, almost unrivaled in post-war literature, unquote. Beat poetry emerged from the disillusionment that followed World War II, a period of unimaginable atrocities, including the Holocaust and the use of nuclear weapons against Japan. Following the end of the war, the United States and the Soviet Union quickly entered a Cold War, a period of geopolitical hostility that created paranoia and cultural and political repression at home. By the mid-1950s, the Beats helped to spearhead a cultural vanguard reacting against institutionalized American values, materialism, and conformity. In a sense, they are the forgotten hippies of the 1950s, especially with their disgust for any type of political repression and military control that the United States seemed to, even back then, have a special fascination with, although we did it covertly through the CIA manipulating governments in the Middle East and South America, through the United States government bringing drugs into black communities and culminating in our using a red flag operation to start a war in Korea and then the same thing in Vietnam. Today, the United States believe it or not, is involved in over 80 armed conflicts. The nightly news is a complete joke. Young American boys and girls are bleeding out in strange lands every day, but we hear nothing about this. We just hear the same Democrat versus Republican dog and pony show designed to distract us from what's really going on. After the fantastic book titled On the Road was sold to Viking Press, which had been his main literary focus for the past five years, Kerouac made arrangements to travel to Mexico City. I myself moved to Mexico City about 12 years ago and have been living in Mexico ever since. I only returned to the States about 10 years ago for maybe about 10 hours because my ex-wife had a harebrained scheme to claim that she lived in Texas. Well, anyway, it was here in Mexico that Kerouac was inspired to write Mexico City Blues, a collection of poems that is evidence of his stylistic experimentation with Buddhist imagery. The references Kerouac incorporates into this work included states of consciousness, names of Buddhist teachers, and brief excerpts of the Surangama and Lankavatara Sutras. The poems in this work contain references to the world's religious leaders, including Christ, Buddha, St. Francis, and, quote-unquote, the nickname ascribed by Kerouac to the Buddhist deity figure known as the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara, These religious personas provide a reference for understanding Kerouac's idea of spiritual relevance. It is within this text that he defines himself as a spiritual seeker, which did not dilute his devotion to Buddhism. Instead, Mexico City Blues demonstrates the author's curiosities, and serves to denote his progress in spiritual pursuits. Although a pluralistic inclusion is apparent in his work, Kerouac's allegiance was decidedly Buddhist during this period. In addition to this, he found the need to create a synthesis between Eastern and Western a synthesis that was as much defined by cultural references as it was by religious imagery. He juxtaposed images of the Buddha against jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker, whose improvised music reminded Kerouac of the great liberation discussed in the sutras. Rock musicians integrated Buddhist themes, such as living in the moment and suffering caused by desire and craving, since the 1970s. Certain pop stars, however, have taken their engagement with Buddhism to new levels. Lori Anderson and her famed late husband, Lou Reed, would reflect their own dharma studies in their later work, and poet balladeer Leonard Cohen would take up a serious Zen practice in the 90s. Ask people about Buddhism and modern music, and you're almost certain to hear a comment about Katie Lang's lush and enduring 1992 hit, with its lyrics of longings never fulfilled titled, Constant Cravings. That album is absolutely one of my favorite. I must have listened to it a million times. Even Buddhists who don't know that Katie Lang is a dedicated practitioner seem to make the connection. Go to the website, Lions Roar. I'll put a link in the show description and make sure you scroll all the way down the page to what they call A Fan's Guide to Modern Buddhist Music. Also, check out Zen Music Garden on Apple Music and Zen Music on Spotify. For the last 10 years or so, something called Zen Rock and Roll is the progressive rock project of composer and multi-instrumentalist Jonathan Saunders. The pieces on Zen rock and roll CDs incorporate elements of rock, 19th and 20th century art music, and world music performed and recorded in the tradition of symphonic progressive rock. The songs range from rock verse and chorus structures to more complex forms that stem from classical and romantic traditions. In a review of his album, it states that Zen rock and roll is the solo project of Jonathan Saunders of Memphis, Tennessee. Saunders studied music at universities in the United States and Germany, and his prior bands covered Yes, Genesis, and particularly Led Zeppelin tunes. He has composed music for orchestral instruments, choirs, electronic instruments, and rock bands. The all-rounder then turned his hand to progressive rock, and End of the Age is his debut progressive release. So if you can, have a listen. His music is available on Amazon.com. The review also says that, quote, the closer you listen to this album, the more you'll appreciate it. But it isn't music you could easily play in the background. And that is a function of the production and mixing. Every note on all three tracks is bright and crystal clear, Unquote. I've always thought true analog synthesis was real Zen music. I used to tell people this back in the 80s. I studied analog synthesis in New York City at a place called PASS, which stands for Public Access Synthesizer Studio, a very cool place where I recorded several compositions. I thought to myself, traditional music is generated from instruments that one touches or blows air into, but the instruments are very much physical objects. The sound that is produced by an Analog synthesizer is not produced by any instrument. There's no hitting, touching, or blowing air involved in making the sound. The sound truly comes from the void. It comes from emptiness. Hence, my love for analog synthesis especially analog synthesizers that do not have traditional keyboards. So, now, let's talk about how Zen really rocks. Have you ever seen a Zen garden? Or perhaps noticed how when there is an article about Zen, they will have a photo or image of rocks stacked on top of one another? why do you think zen practitioners do this well as you know i play the piano my piano teacher professor james gerard demartini may he rest in peace was a noted abstract artist as well as a professor of music at the brooklyn conservatory of music so In his studio, besides his large library of books, his large collection of African statues, his beautiful grand piano, were many paintings and sculptures, all in various stages of completion. But he had something else that always puzzled me. By the entrance to his studio, He had a large bowl, and inside it was a collection of stones. One day, he noticed me looking at the stones and asked me, what do you experience when you see the stones? I said, I want to pick one up. He said, exactly. And then he invited me to hold various of the rocks in my hands as he explained how he specifically chose each rock because he felt an urge to hold it. Well, for those of you who may have some time at your desk in your office or who might have difficulty getting yourself to meditate every day or who are now working from home, I have a new option for you. Go outside in nature, preferably a stream, river, or the ocean, and look for rocks that fascinate you. Traditionally, Zen practitioners have chosen very smooth stones, polished by the water, but you can make do with any stones that, for whatever reason, catch your attention. The size is not important. If you, for example, want something to do while you have downtime at work, choose small stones. If you have a large backyard and enjoy manual labor, you can choose larger stones. It's all up to you. Now, your task is to simply stack as many stones as possible one on top of the other. This requires great concentration and focus, which, of course, is the whole point. You are, in fact, meditating, doing Zen meditation, while you are completely engrossed in balancing the various rocks your rational mind is not thinking, worrying, brooding about something you did yesterday or what you plan to do tomorrow. You are completely in the now. You are really seeing the stones. Remember the importance of seeing in Wu Xin. They are no longer just quote unquote stones to you, but you are now carefully examining them to see how you can pile them. Since stones come in all sizes, you can practice this Zen exercise in your home, office, or outside on your property, or even at the beach or in a park. The great master Linji Yishuan said, When it's time to get dressed, put on your clothes. When you must walk, then walk. When you must sit, then sit. Just be your ordinary self in ordinary life, unconcerned in seeking for Buddhahood, When you're tired, lie down. The fool will laugh at you, but the wise man will understand. Remember another thing. No one ordained the Buddha. So do not be intimidated by those who say you can only receive Zen or Chan by studying face-to-face with a master. Do what you love to do. In silence there is illumination. In stillness clarity is ever-present. As Henry David Thoreau said, the question is not what you look at, but what you see. Come back to the reality of what is happening now. Until the next time, peace. If you enjoyed this show, it would mean the absolute world to me, if you gave this podcast five stars. I'm not selling you anything or even asking you to donate to Patreon because I know how profoundly difficult it is for most of you with this unspeakably difficult pandemic to make ends meet. Probably the most important thing you can do for me is to leave this podcast a five-star review. Go to this podcast page, Lawrence Gallian's The Silence of the Mind, and tap on Rate Podcast or whatever they have to leave a rating and a review. Remember, the ultimate reality is unknowable. The Upanishads say, If you think that you understand Brahman, you do not understand. You have yet to be instructed further. If you know that you do not understand, then you truly understand. For the Brahman is unknown to those who know it, and known to those who know it not. If you say the ultimate reality is zero, you are wrong. If you say it is one, you are wrong. If you say it is three, you are also wrong. About the divine, you can only say, Not this, not that.